If you have your Bible, open it with me again to the book of Genesis. And I know you may think I'm stuck there. I've been there for a few weeks using that as the kickoff point for uh, what I wanted to preach on. And the subject this morning is from the river to the sea. From the river to the sea. A war is raging right now in Israel. The war has been raging for 36 days now. This is the 36th day. It began on October the 7th when Hamas terrorists shot over 1,500 rockets into Israel. The terrorists broke through the wall that separates Gaza and Israel, and they killed over 1,400 Jews. Some of them came in on paragliders, of all things, that they had rigged to be able to get across the wall. Others broke through the wall with bulldozers and trucks. They killed 1,400 people. They were mutilating and burning bodies, raping, beheading babies. They took over 250 hostages that we know of. I'll tell you the story of just one and how barbaric that day was. A young girl, 23 years old, born in Germany, but had gone to Israel as a German Jew. Her name was Shani Luke. Beautiful girl. She had even been a model in Germany. She, she was captured at a music festival. She was raped scores of times, paraded through the streets of Gaza in her underwear, and then killed. They believed beheaded. Israel immediately retaliated and called up over 350,000 reservists And America promised her aid and has been helping her. And since then, huge Palestinian rallies have uh, been held around America and literally around the world. The picture there depicts the theme of those rallies where they have chanted sometimes over and over and over for minutes, from the river to the sea, from the river to the sea from the river to the sea. Yesterday in uh, England, in London, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands, perhaps maybe up to a million people gathered in a rally, a pro-Palestinian, they call it pro-Palestinian rally. It's really not very fair to the Palestinian people. All the Palestinian people are not Hamas. They should be pro-Hamas rallies by the truth of what is actually going on, but at any rate, they're called, referring to it as pro-Palestinian rallies. And so they've celebrated, really, one of the most barbaric acts that have ever been held on American soil and around the world. The, the meaning of that phrase, from the river to the sea, from the river to the sea, it basically means to annihilate the nation of Israel, to eliminate all Jews from the earth. It is the ultimate form of anti-Semitism. It's regarded as hate speech in some countries. For example, already before this even happened, that phrase was viewed as a criminal offense in Germany, Australia, and the Netherlands. Now, we don't like identifying things as criminal speech because we believe in freedom of speech. 
but it gives you the idea of how vitriolic this phrase is and, and the, the hidden meaning of it. It truly is hate speech. Now, a question that we want to think about, though, as we gather in a worship service in America as Christians is, is this just an ancient land dispute between some people over there in the Middle East and the Jews? Or does this have a much deeper significance? You know, if you understand biblical prophecy at all, you understand that from the moment of the rapture on, from the moment of the rapture on, God's entire focus prophetically will be on the Jews. The tribulation period will be a great, great time of focus on the Jews, God bringing them back and ultimately bringing them to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, where the entire nation will be converted in one day. And so, when you look at what is happening in the world today, the possibility of it having much deeper significance than what the average person thinks about, that possibility is very, very real. So this morning, I want to speak about it again because though I've spoken about it, there's so much material here that you could actually go for weeks. I'm not going to, but I want you as a congregation to have a deep understanding of biblical prophecy and what these events that we're living through right now, the significance that they could possibly have. We don't know yet ultimately where this will go, so I want to be careful in my remarks. I don't know what's going to happen out here two or three months. I don't know what will happen during this war, but I do know what the Bible says about the nation of Israel and the important role that it plays in biblical prophecy. And so today, you take your Bible and use it as you, and turn to the references with me. The first question this morning is, who owns the land from the river to the sea? They're chanting from the river to the sea. Well, who owns that land? That's the bottom uh, premise in this whole dispute right now. And I want you to look at the map there of the nation of Israel as it is right now. And it's a little hard to read, but I think you can see. Do you see the Gaza Strip down there in the lower left-hand corner of Israel? And really, the Gaza Strip is not half as big as Florence County in landmass. You're talking about a very, very small, small piece of land there. If you go over to the West Bank, which includes a very large segment, that also is under Arabic or Palestinian control. And if you go up in the Golan Heights area, you'll also see that there's another piece of Israel that is under Arabic or Palestinian control. Now, that came about in 2005 when George Bush brokered a deal, and they called it Land for Peace, where the nation of Israel, that they gave up those pieces of land that they had captured and fought for and that rightfully belonged to them. They gave it over to the Palestinian Authority in order that they would have peace, and peace was guaranteed to them. But there's really not been any peace since then. And so the promises have all been broken to Israel. And we, people have thought that their response was way overdone uh, in this war so far. 
When you think of what they've given up, they've given up almost half of their nation, and yet it has not brought them peace, and they had 1,400 of their citizens killed in one day. Now, if you, if you extrapolate that over to America, that would be about the equivalent of about 40,000 Americans being killed in one day. So the, Israel's a small country. It has 9.1 million people. And if you kill 1,400 of those people, you have, you have hit it a lick like killing 40,000 Americans in one day or the entire population of the Florence area, if you want to put it in those terms. So who owns that land? Well, we go to in our Bible again to Genesis chapter 12, and in the first three verses, we find out that God gave the land from the river to the sea, and even much more than that, he gave it to Abraham. And so he said, the Lord said, get out from your country and your kindred, from your father's house to a land that I'm going to show you. I'll make of you a great nation. In fact, he's made many nations of Abraham because all the Arab peoples come from Abraham and the Jews come from Abraham. And God said, I will bless you if you will obey me. I'll make your name great, and it is. And you will be a blessing, and he has been. And I will bless those that bless you and curse him that curseth you. And in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed, and they have been. Because through the Jewish people came the Bible, came the Savior, came, came many other blessings we won't talk about. Go to chapter 13 and verse 15. And in chapter 13 and verse 15, for all the land that you see, to you will I give it and to your seed forever, circle forever in your Bible. God says this, is, this never will end. And if you will go to chapter 17 and verse 7 and 8, you will read there that God said, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your seed after you and their generation, and it is an everlasting possession. Note that, everlasting. And I will give it unto you and to your seed after you, the land wherein right now you're a stranger, all the land of Canaan for, an, there's the word again, an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. The land at the time was occupied by the, a tribe of Canaanitish people. They were called the Amorites, the Amorites. And the Amorites were a violent, violent people. We know that there's been archaeological digs, and, and we know from written documents, ancient, ancient documents that we have found in, in, the, in the Middle East, that the, the Amorites were a violent people. They were a very pornographic people. You can find even online little statuettes about this big of people in very, very pornographic positions, everything that a sinful, lustful mind can conceive was made into a figure by these ancient, ancient peoples, the Amorites, the Canaanites of that time. In addition to that, they worshiped idols and they sacrificed their children. And when you read in the Bible, he put his son through the fire. What that means is they sacrificed their children. Child sacrifice was often practiced by these people. And there's something very interesting we've not touched yet in previous weeks. If you go to Genesis 15 and 13, 
The men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before the Lord. Now I'm in the wrong chapter here, chapter 15 and verse 13. And let's go for the sake of time down to verse 16. And, and God said, in the fourth generation, they shall come here again, meaning to the promised land. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. You see, Abraham asked God, when is this going to happen? When am I going to get this land you promised me in chapter 12 and verse 1 and in chapter 15 and chapter 17? When am I going to possess the land? And God said, I'll give it to you in time when the, when the wickedness of the Amorites, the iniquity of the Ammonites is full. And God, if you would visualize with me, for example, visualize a cup, and the cup is under a faucet and it's dripping, drip, 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 slowly, maybe even more slowly than I'm dripping it right now. When the cup gets full, the judgment is going to come on the Amorites. That's a figure that's used throughout Scripture over and over, that the wrath of God is like a cup and wickedness is being committed by people of the world. And it's dripping. And we don't know how fast or how slowly it's dripping, but it's dripping. And then one day the cup is full and the judgment comes. And God said, I have my timetable, Abraham. And when the Amorite's cup of wickedness is full, I'm going to judge them through Joshua. I'm going to remove them from the land and I'm going to, you're going to have your possession that I promised you. God did the same thing, by the way, with Sodom and Gomorrah. When their wickedness was full, He judged them. He did the same thing at the flood, when the wickedness of man was so great that every thought and imagination of his heart was evil continually. He's going to do the same thing. You'll find that cup of wrath being filled up in the book of Revelation. And we don't know when God is going to bring judgment upon this world, but He's going to do it when He's had enough. There is a cup in His mind of iniquity, of evil. And when it's full, judgment will fall upon this planet again. So God continued then to promise the land to His descendants, even though they weren't going to get it for oh, almost 500 years in the future. In chapter 17 and verse 19, it's promised to Sarah's son. Now, Abraham had two sons, remember? Ishmael by Hagar, a concubine, and a son by his wife, Sarah. It's Sarah's son that it, his son is the one who will receive the promises and who receives the covenant. In chapter 28, in verse 13 and 14, also the covenant land was promised to Jacob, Abraham's grandson. And Jacob later, his name is changed. He is called Israel. That's where the name came from, a prince with God. And Jacob, of course, had 12 sons, and they became the sons or the heads of the tribes of Israel. Even in chapter 50, go with me to chapter 50, the book of Genesis. The book is closing, and hundreds of years have passed by now, and we're in chapter 50. And Joseph, that wonderful, wonderful man, is on his deathbed. And in chapter 50, in verse number 24, Joseph said unto his brethren, I'm dying. 
and God will surely visit you, and he will bring you out of this land. They're in Egypt now, see. He will bring you out of this land, Egypt, unto the land that he swear to whom? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so God's covenant promises continued right on down through Joseph, and he reminds his brothers, you take my body back was his request here in this chapter. You carry my body back whenever we have freedom to go into the land. I want to be buried in that holy land, that soil, that Canaan land. I want to be buried where God promised that we would inherit that land. You know, any property lawyer will tell you, and you know it without even that, you know that covenants go with the land. When you buy a house, you better have a title search. You better find out what covenants have been affixed to that land because the covenants go through the different owners. They, they, they don't pass away just because the land has changed owners. And in the same way, God's covenant, His covenant is with the land and with the seed of Abraham through his wife, Sarah. Even when the land changes hands and the land really began to change hands. Now, in your Bible, go to the book of Deuteronomy and chapter number 29, if you will, and you'll find another covenant with another man. This is the land covenant. We call it that, the land covenant, specifically about the land. And it was given to Moses. Moses, in fact, was given two covenants, one back in Exodus 19. Now another one here, the land covenant. In fact, modern Bible scholars have called it the Palestinian covenant. If you have a Schofield Bible, for example, it, it will call it the Palestinian covenant there, though there weren't any Palestinians right here. They didn't come along until a thousand years later or more. And so in Deuteronomy 29, these are the words of the covenant, verse 1, which the Lord commanded Moses to make with the children of Israel in the land of Moab, beside the covenant he made with them in Horeb, that's chapter 19. And Moses called all Israel together, and he said, and I'm not going to read it because it goes all the way through chapter 29, 29 verses there. It goes through chapter 30 and down to chapter 31, all the way there. That's the land covenant. It didn't replace that covenant that God gave to Abraham, but it added some conditions to it. It restated the covenant and it added some conditions. And what were the conditions? The conditions were simple. If you obey my law, my words, I will bless you. And he reiterated that, and he told them what the blessings would be. Their cattle would, uh, give, would be very fruitful. Their fields would be fertile. They would prosper among the nations. God would get, grant them safety. God blessed them in wonderful, wonderful ways if they were obedient, but it was all tied to obedience. And he said, if you don't obey me, then curses are going to come upon you. The curses will involve the fact that your fields will not give fruit and your cattle will not, they'll not calve and, and, and the sheep won't prosper and and, and you won't prosper, and you will lose your health. And I mean, it was a long list 
Actually, much of it is also given back in chapter 28. And he says, if you don't obey me, there's one other thing. You will be scattered among the nations of the world. Just stop and think about that. God told them way back then, if you don't obey me, Israel, you're going to be scattered to all the nations of the world. Look with me in chapter 30. We'll read just a bit of it. It came to pass, it will come to pass after all these things have come upon you, the blessings and the curses, which I've set before you, and you will call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord thy God hath driven you, driven you. Notice that. God is the one who forces them out of their land. And, but you will return unto the Lord your God and obey his voice according to all that I command you this day, you and your children, with all your heart, with all your soul. And that, then the Lord God will turn your captivity, even if you're driven out for your disobedience. I'll turn that around. I'll have compassion upon you, and I will return and gather you from all the nations. Underline that in your Bible. God says, I'll gather you out of all the nations where the Lord has scattered you. It wasn't men that scattered them. It was the Lord that scattered them. If any of you be driven out to the outermost parts of heaven, from thence will the Lord thy God gather you again, and from thence will he fetch you. The Lord thy God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed, and you will possess it, and he will do you good and multiply you above your fathers. The greatest days are in the future, is what he said to them. And then he emphasized the importance of a free choice. Look down in verse 19. I call heaven and earth to to record this day against you. I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing, therefore choose life. He wasn't saying that for a pro-life license plate, by the way. I'm glad they use it for that. But he's saying, you are making a choice as a nation, whether you will live or die as a nation, and I hope you will choose life. I hope you will honor your covenant. Well, that's the end of Deuteronomy. Moses dies Joshua chapter 1, which we'll look at Wednesday night, that Joshua conquers the land. The Amorites are living there. They've been living there for the 500 years since God said to Abraham, I'm going to give you the land when the wickedness of the Amorites is full, when the cup of my wrath is full. And guess what? The time has come. And Joshua's going to lead them in And they're going to cleanse the land of the Amorites. And they did. And the nation lived there. You know the reign of, they went through the period of the judges, 400 more years. The nation of Israel was in the land. And then we come to the kings, and we had Saul, and we had David, and we have Solomon. And that's another 120 or 150 years or so. And now... They've been in the land for about 600 or more years, and there's a civil war after Solomon. And the tribes of the northern kingdom split off from the two tribes of the southern kingdom, Judah and half the tribe of Benjamin. And we go through a long period of all those kings, and king after king after king, most of them wicked kings. 
Then finally, the Assyrian Empire comes down and captures the top ten tribes called Israel. They were called Israel. The bottom two tribes, the southern kingdom, were called Judah. The ten tribes are carried away by the Assyrians. They're spread all over the world. There were Jews in Babylon that Peter wrote to in 1 Peter, to the saints in, in, in Babylon. They're scattered all over the world. They're in Egypt. And they never come back to the land. The ten northern tribes never come back. They don't want to come back. They settle down. They're making money all over the world. The southern kingdom went for another 150 years, and then Babylon came. And because of their disobedience, they were taken to Babylon. And they were there for 70 years, but then they began to migrate back. The stories in Ezra and Nehemiah in your Bible. And they exist for another 650 years until the Romans come down in 70 A.D. This is clear after Jesus now. And in 70 A.D., they come down. And they sack the city and burn Jerusalem, burn the temple, strip it of its gold, take the vessels back to Babylon or back to Rome. And hence, is a terrible, terrible time again in the life of Israel. There's one thing you don't hear about much. It's called the Bar Kokhba Revolt. It's in 135 A.D. Where because the Jews kept revolting, the ones that were left in, in, in uh, Israel, there was quite a number of them never left after 70 A.D. But now they put together a revolt by a man that they think is the Messiah. His name is Kupka. And the Jews killed 500, or pardon me, the Romans killed 580,000 Jews. They make slaves out of almost the rest of them. They make it illegal under Roman law for a Jew to even go back into the city of Jerusalem. And the emperor in Rome, Hadrian, changed the name of the country. It had been Israel for thousands of years. But in 135 A.D., the name of the country has changed. What do you think it's changed to? Palestine. You know why Adrian chose, uh, Hadrian chose Palestine? Because the Philistines had been the traditional enemies of Israel, and you read in the Bible about them. Goliath was a Philistine and so on, from, from Gaza, by the way. And Hadrian chose the name, he chose the Latin form of Philistine, which is Palestinian. So basically, he named their country after their worst enemies, the Philistines, only the Latinized version of it is Palestinian. And then for 1,878 years, 1,878 years, the Romans ruled over Israel, the Byzantine Greeks ruled over Israel, the Muslims ruled over Israel for a period of time. Each of them would replace the other. Then the Crusaders went about a thousand year, the year 1,000. Then they were replaced by the Mamluks, the Mongols, and then they were replaced by the Ottoman Turks who were replaced by the British. And the British said, we don't even want the land under a U.N. mandate, 1948. After the Holocaust and six million Jews had been murdered by Hitler, some people in America and some people in England said, for God's sakes, these poor people need a place to live. 
Well, they have a land. They lived in it for thousands of years. Why don't we give them back their land? There's nobody living there. Now, listen to what I'm saying. There's nobody living there. And there weren't. There were only like six or 80,000 people living in the whole land. And so they gave it back to them under a mandate of the United Nations in 1948. They declared that little piece of land, they declared it to be the nation of Israel again. It wasn't the land that they had had before. It's not much land. It's, it's about like New Jersey. It's 71 miles wide at the widest point. It's 280 miles long north to south. Not as big as, it's about like half of South Carolina. The whole land. And then they came along wanting them to give part of it away for peace. And then they're continually attacked. And yet God has never abrogated his covenant. God never has said, no, I'm not going to keep my covenant with you anymore. In the late 1800s, there was a movement that started in Europe. It's called the Zionist movement. It was a return to Zion, the name for Jerusalem. The land, when they got there, about 30 or 40,000 Jews moved there over a period of time. The land was a wilderness. It was almost uninhabited. Scattered Bedouin settlements living in tents. Malaria-infested swamps. The land had been totally deforested. No forests at all. No trees. No government. It was just a wilderness with a few people scattered living in it. And those returning Jews purchased the land from the Arab owners And they formed these farms with several families together called a kibbutz. It was really an experiment in socialism. They moved away from it, but there's still a few of them there. And if you go to Israel today, you will see a country that's as fertile. It looks like the farmlands of Florida, the farmlands of the PD, the farmlands of around California where they do all the fruit and vegetables. Fertile fields today. Orchards, forests. Most people don't realize they feed, they provide the vegetables for much of Europe. Much of Europe depends on Israel for, their, for part of their food supply. And today there's over 9 million people living there. About half of them came from Russia, Russian Jews. But they've come from all the nations of the world, all over the world, wherever there were Jews. They're back in the land. Well, you have to then ask about, well, what about the Palestinians, though, in this dispute? And don't think that all the Palestinians are terrorists. Most of them are Muslims, but do you know many of them are Christians? Do you know there are evangelical churches in Gaza today? So don't equate all the Palestinian people with Hamas. It's not. The Hamas is a terrorist organization. They're like Al-Qaeda. They're like ISIS. But there's good Palestinian people, but they're trapped. They unfortunately had an election there and voted in Hamas to be the governing body. And how that happened, I don't know, but we've got the same problems in America anymore, don't we? And so they're trapped there today. The terrorists are using them as their shields. 
to be able to survive the Israeli army. They're tragic people, the Palestinians. I feel sorry for the Palestinians. Their own people don't want them. When I went to Israel a couple of times, I would wonder why aren't why are these Palestinians in these camps and so on being treated, living so poorly, when the Arab world has millions and millions of square miles, but they won't let their own people in. So these people are forced to live between their own Arabic family and Israel. You see refugee camps of Palestinians, at least you did back in those days. Now, they've been separated. They've been made refugees. They've been ostracized. And these terrorists have come in and just absolutely taken over. So here's the question. I've I've given you a Jewish history lesson, but if you don't know the background, the context of the Scriptures, you don't, there's, there's no way you can interpret the prophecies of the Bible. You have to know that, folks. And people skip over it sometimes because it's really, it's, it's very involved. It's complex and it's hard. But, but I'm treating you like you're not the average nominal Christian. I want you to know what God's Word says about these things. Does modern Israel then still have the right to the land? Have they somehow lost the promises, the covenants that God gave to them, to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, and so on right down through? Or does modern, is modern Israel still the same as ancient Israel? Well, back in 400, Augustine, who is in many ways a, a great theologian, but was really confused about some things, he spiritualized the Bible so much. He said that God's kingdom began when Christ was on the cross, and that we're now in the kingdom. We call it amillennialism. Ah, meaning there's no literal millennial kingdom. And he said, we're building the kingdom. And so you hear people in churches talk about that. We're building the kingdom. Building. No, we're not. We're building the church. The kingdom begins when Jesus returns. We're not in the kingdom. Lord knows I hope this isn't a kingdom. I hope it's going to be better than this, don't you? And, and, and Augustine's thinking and amillennial's thinking is because Israel has been unfaithful to God, then God is through with Israel. But aren't you glad that God is not through with us when we're unfaithful to Him? And He's not unfaithful to His people. He even said at one point, if you deny me yet, I will be your God. His patience is so wonderful. His love is so enduring. And so, but they're saying that modern Israel has no claim to God's covenant because they've been unfaithful to God. And unfortunately, some very great people, people that I admire in many ways, picked up those ideas, John Calvin, Jonathan Edwards, and so on. And we call that today replacement theology, meaning that Israel now no longer has claim to God's covenants, that those covenant promises belong to the church, to the to New Testament Christians. And my point to you is, I've read you over and over and pointed it out and put it in red. God says my covenant is forever. It is everlasting. Israel is still my people. She's the 
apple of my eye, he says in one place. God even says, and we won't look it up because we looked it up last week, Jeremiah 31, 36, and 7, if you want to write it down. God says, if, if these ordinances, my promises, my covenants ever end, then the laws of nature will be upended. The sun won't come up and the seasons won't change. My covenant with Israel is as good as my name, my holy name. So, why is what is important over there? Why is what is happening over there so vitally important today? Well, number one, it's important because we're seeing another set of prophecies, perhaps, and I don't know for sure, but perhaps come into being. And those are found in the book of Zechariah chapter number uh, 12. Turn with me there. Zechariah. That's two back, two books back from the New Testament, from Matthew, okay? Zechariah chapter 12. Down in verse 3. In that day will I make Jerusalem a burdensome stone. It's going to be a problem for everybody, the city of Jerusalem. Is that not true today in the world? The city of Jerusalem and what to do with it and the holy places there. And uh, the Muslims claim Jerusalem. The Jews claim Jerusalem. The Christians claim Jerusalem. It's a cup of trembling. It's a problem. It's a burdensome stone. All that burden themselves with it shall be cut in pieces, though all the people of the earth be gathered together against it. Uh-oh. You read your paper right now. And what are you reading? All the nations are turning against Israel. Right there. All the nations. So when all over the world, there are hundreds of thousands of people, hundreds of thousands yesterday in London, carrying a banner that says, we demand from the river, that's Jordan on the east, to the sea, the Mediterranean on the west, all that land in between, we want the Jews annihilated. We want that land for the Palestinians and the Arabic, for Islam really is what they want. When, when you see that happening and the same thing happened in London, Paris, Rome, down in Latin America, all across the world, in the United States, in New York City, they shut the city down, in Washington, it's everywhere. The nations will at some point be gathered against Israel. You're seeing it in the anti-Semitism, the hatred for the nation of Israel. In our college students, who would have ever thought? We know that later on in the tribulation period, the Antichrist will He'll do everything he can to completely annihilate the Jewish people. But boy, God is on their side. Let me show you a verse of Scripture, Romans chapter 11. Turn there, and the Apostle Paul is writing in uh, two or three chapters here. He devotes in the middle of Romans to the future of Israel. And I'm going to read. I'm not going to read all the verses there on the screen for the sake of time here today. But I'm just going to read chapter 11 
of the book of Genesis and verse number 26. Just one phrase there. Well, no, let's back up. I've got to read 25. I would not, brethren, that you would be ignorant of this mystery. A mystery is something that wasn't revealed until the Holy Spirit revealed it. It wasn't known until the Spirit revealed it. Lest you should be wise in your own conceits. Blindness, in part, has happened to Israel. God blinded their eyes after their rejection of Christ for a period of time. How long? Until the fullness of there's our phrase, of the Gentiles become in. And so all Israel shall be saved. That's in the tribulation period. You read about that in the book of Revelation. And there will come out of Zion the deliverer. Where's Jesus coming back to? Zion, the Mount of Olives. And he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant to them. Wow. Don't do what so many people are doing. It's bad news over there. I don't want to read about a war, all those atrocities. I, I don't want to. I don't even care about all that. My friend, your future is inextricably bound up with what happens with the nation of Israel. And from the rapture on, everything that God is going to be doing is going to be focused on them. Here's the way I like to say it. Things are not falling apart. They're falling into place. God is in control. They're not falling apart. Everybody, oh, things are falling. No, they're falling into place. And just like God has this big jigsaw puzzle, history and geography and politics and religion, and he's just moving the pieces. He's moving it at his own pace. When the cup is full, he'll act. He says that even here. Now, the issue always is then, what will you do with Jesus Christ? It's always the issue. It's the issue if you're not saved because Jesus is the Savior. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the only Savior. You come by Him or you don't go. He loves you with a love as great as His love for the nation of Israel. And Jesus, you know what? The Lord Jesus Christ has done everything He can do to guarantee your salvation. And the only thing he can't do is he can't make a decision for you. What did Moses say to the people that day? Choose life. You know, when I preach the gospel to you, what I'm saying, choose life, folks. God's done everything he needs to do. Everything is done. Jesus said it's finished, the plan of salvation. But you have to choose. You have to choose. Adrian Rogers said it so well. You're free to choose, but you're not free to not choose. And you're not free to choose the consequences of your choices. In fact, your choices choose for you. And so today, if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, please come. Our men are going to stand across the front here from our staff. And there's 
and, and they're going to wait on you. Even after we dismiss, they're going to be standing here after, after we sing the final song. And I want you to come if you're not absolutely sure, based upon Scripture of your salvation, come and choose today whom you will serve. Choose Jesus Christ. It's as simple. In 10 minutes from now, you can know that your sins are forgiven and you're on your way to heaven. And if you're a Christian, my soul, if it isn't the time, we need to be living close to the Lord. It's the time for obedience. It's the time for repentance. It's the time to keep our hearts warm toward the things of God. It's the time to serve Him. It's the time to seek to please Him with our life. And so I ask you to come too. And you may be here today and not be a member of this church, and yet God is leading you here. You sense that in your spirit. You want to be in a church where the Bible and the preaching of the gospel is central to everything. And if you do, I sure want you to come and be a part of our fellowship today. Will you stand with me right now and bow your heads as we pray?